You ever felt you're being watched sometimes? Have you ever had a cold shiver run down your spine? Sometimes we go through that. Sometimes we look for answers to questions we don't really truly understand. Like, are we truly alone in the universe? Is there life after death? This world is weird. It gets weirder by the day. And in that weird are questions that we have as curious beings known as humans. Tonight, we look into some of those questions and get a little weird. Cause we all are just a tad bit weird. Tonight on Weekend Weird. Broadcasting live from the depths of hell in the middle of Armageddon, it's Weekend Weird, the show about the weird and mundane out in this universe. I'm your host, producer. Guys, just trying to survive out in this crazy ass world. Red Nick, and I'm joined by my usual co-host and heterosexual life mate, Ogul. So, how you doing, Ogul? Hey, man. <laughs> What's going on? I'm alright. I don't know. I got. I, I I don't know. I got upgraded to heterosexual life mate, but yeah. if this is the way you're proposing to me, oh, yes. <laughs> Just life partners, but in a totally platonic, heterosexual way. He said yes. <laughs> yes. He went to Jared. <laughs> What's up, man? Nice to be on here again. Uh, yeah, I'm doing all right. Trying to survive <clears throat> the fucking apocalypse. Because since the last episode, the world's taking even more bigger shit. Oh, and here, I'm just waiting for next month for the super volcanoes. Um, and then in August, uh, the mega cyclones. Yeah, we're dealing the end of the world here, and it's fucked up. I saw, I saw a post just today. It was like, who the hell wrote 2020? It's full of plot holes. He's like, why even introduce the murder hornets? What did that do for the rest of the story? And where are they now? <laughs> It's, it's it's a cinematic universe, man. You just they're coming up. Oh, okay, okay, got it. It's gonna it's gonna talk, all tie together. Yeah, it's all tied together. It's like, hey, you introduce vibranium in Captain America: The First Avenger, and you're just like, oh, his shield's made of vibranium, but it's a little more important because then you introduce Wakanda and no, Avengers. There's no way you just brought this up. I took a picture of it yesterday. I was gonna send it to you. There's a Wakanda fucking Illinois. Yeah, you didn't know that. No, what? <laughs> Yes, it's a Wakanda. I think it's pronounced differently, but yeah, people call I mean, it Wakanda. Like, the way it's spelled, it's not spelled exactly like Wakanda from the film, yeah. but it's it's like W A U C A N D A. It's, it's what Wakanda? <laughs> like, I, I, I don't know the the proper pronunciation. If you do, uh, just send it to uh, the Twitter page at Weekend Weird on Twitter. Uh, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> You just see us. Yep. Wakanda. 
I literally took this picture and sent it to you. I completely forgot to send it to you. Well, God the Father! <laughs> it's like the fucking whitest town. Yes. That's the irony of it. It's on the middle of nowhere that we yeah. were passing by. It's just like, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, yes, it's that town. It's, it's there. White as 2% milk. Uh-huh. It's 2% shit. It's skim milk. <laughs> it's chalk white milk. Just pour it out. <laughs> yeah, that's funny as hell. And speaking of chalk white milk, this episode, <laughs> uh, we're going to be taking a look at um, what American folklore says one of the most haunted uh, stories of all time, but the rest of the world knows that it's pretty much the giant hoax that it is. Uh, we're going to be talking about the Amityville Horror. The book and experiences that spawned countless numbers of movies and only the first one was good and the rest of them were crap. <laughs> you know what though? Like, I'll be completely honest. Until um, you said we were doing this story, I didn't know it was a hoax. It's been pretty much... Um, brought down as a hoax because you can't prove the story okay it's true at all i mean i guess i'm like the you know i guess i'm like a casual you know horror fan i guess yeah like most people are and i only know the movies so i didn't know there was like a whole hoax you know, debunked story behind well, what inspired the film. Yeah, the well, what inspired the film was the book, The Amityville Horror. Okay. And it deals with uh, 18 days, I believe. Was it 18 days or 30 some odd days of this family's experience in this home? But the real horror is how the home was how the home came available. Because there was a real murder of a family in that home beforehand um, in there. That's that's the real horror of it, that this family was butchered in their home um, back in the 70s uh, before this other family came in. And uh, I don't know whether the family, um, I mean, their stories and allegations, how the family came to this story, they... Well, the two heads of the family, uh, to their dying day, said that this is real, that this is what happened to us. But you know, you look at the story, you start weighing in the facts. You can't prove what they're saying is true. So I it see, is yeah. kind of a hoax, and um, but it's so embedded in American, <clears throat> excuse me, folklore that people still believe that this is real. But it gives off these these movies that you watch, like on a Friday, Saturday night, get together with your girl or your uh, get together with your guy, order pizza, pop some popcorn, have some beers or some pops, and uh, watch these watch these films and get scared off of them. Uh, but this story that you try to play that is true, I, I my opinion is not real. <clears throat> okay. Well, let's get into it. Well, yeah. Well, we're going to get into the Amityville Horror. Um, but first, before we go into the actual experiences of the family, which were named the uh, Lutz family, uh, we need to talk about the actual murders that had happened in this um, in this home before the Lutz family even moved into there. Um, so, you ready? In the mm. mixture, 
getting away from a usual UFO, but we're still on true crime and the haunted story ready to get weird? Let's do it. All right. So, The Amityville Horror is originally a book written by American author Jane Aniston, published in September 1977. It's the basis of a series of films released from 1979 onward, with the last movie coming like 05, which was a remake with Ryan Reynolds. You know, I think I saw that one. I remember kind of liking it. I didn't like it. I saw like I saw the original Amityville Horror years ago, mm-hmm. and it wasn't that scary, but it was still a decent film. And then you see the remake, and you're just like with Ryan Reynolds, he's like, I can't believe this guy is really going insane. It's at the end of the day, it's Ryan Reynolds. <laughs> you just want him just to bust out a damn joke or something in the middle of it. Him holding an axe, trying to kill his family, and just stops midway and just goes. Hey, I just made a pun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Um, but it's been, the story has been, uh, the book claims that what had happened with paranormal experiences is <clears throat> happening to the Lutz family of uh, George and, see, Kathy Lutz. Kathleen, yeah. And their three children. <clears throat> um, but it has led to a lot of lawsuits uh, for the story because of the truthfulness. So let's first start off with the actual murders that happened in uh, Amityville, in, in the home in Amityville. Um, on, excuse me, on Wednesday, November 13th, 1974, 23-year-old uh, Ronald DeFeo had entered Henry's Bar in Amityville, Long Island, New York. He declared, you got to help me. I think my mother and father are shot. DeFeo and a small group of people went to 112 Ocean Avenue, which was located near the bar, and found that DeFeo's parents were dead inside the house. Another group of DeFeo's, another group of uh, people, including DeFeo's friend Joe uh, Yeswitz, made an emergency call to the Soap Folks Suffolk County Police, who searched the house and found that six members of the same family were all dead in their beds. Jesus. The victims were Ronald Jr.'s parents, Ronald DeFeo Sr. and Lise DeFeo, and his four siblings, Dawn 18, Allison 13, Mark 12, and John Matthew 9. All the victims had been shot with a 35 caliber lever action Martin 336C rifle. God. Around 3.30 in the morning of that day. He shot his nine-year-old brother? Yep. The failed failed parents had both been shot twice when the children had all been killed with a single shot. Physical evidence suggested that Luis DeFeo and her daughter Allison were both awake. Whoever the hell is calling, back off. (laughs) Sorry about that. It's all right. (laughs) Were both awake at the time of their deaths. Everyone else was asleep. According to the Sopo Cali Police... The victims were found lying face down in the bed. The Fayol family had occupied 112 Ocean Avenue since purchasing it in 1965. Ronald DeFeo Jr., who was also known as Butch, was the eldest son of the family and the lone surviving member. He was taken to the local police station for his own protection after suggesting to the police officers at the same at the scene of the crime that the killings were carried out by mob hitman Luis. Fanoli. 
However, an interview at the station soon exposed some serious inconsistencies in, this event, in the versions of his events. The following day, he finally confessed to carrying out the killings himself. And Finale, excuse me, the alleged hitman had an alibi proving he was out of state at the time of the killings. DeFeo told detectives, once I started, I just couldn't stop. It went so fast. He admitted that he had taken a bath and redressed in detail where he had discarded crucial evidence such as the bloodstained clothes and the Martin rifle and cartridges before going to work as usual. That's pretty... Fucked up! That's pretty messed up. It's pretty fucked up. You just come in for whatever reason. You just... Everyone's sleeping. You just bring a rifle and you just start killing your families in their beds. I mean, just the terrifying thought that they were each in a separate bedroom, meaning that you know, I don't know what in what secession he carried out the murders, but whoever the last couple were knew exactly what was happening. You know what I mean? Like yeah. they just had to sit there in their bedroom and wait for this. Ugh, ugh. That's terrible. Nine-year-old, his brother. Yeah, his brother, his sister. Okay, so he admitted to the murders. He admitted to the murders. His trial began in October 1975. His defense attorney had mounted a, a defense of insanity um, with the, with claiming that DeFeo had killed his family in self-defense because he heard their voices plotting against him. The insanity plea was supported by a psychiatrist for the defense, Daniel Swartz. The psychiatrist for the prosecution, Dr. Harold Zolan, maintained that although DeFeo was a user of heroin and LSD, he had a he had an anti-personality disorder and was aware of the actions at the time of the crime. In November 21st, 1975, DeFeo was found guilty on six counts of second-degree murder. And in December of 1975, the judge sentenced DeFeo to six consecutive sentences of 25 years to life. DeFeo is still alive and currently held at the Sutherland County facility in the town of Fallsburg, New York, with all his appeals and requests to the parole board to date, have been denied. Oh, he's still alive. Still alive. Oh, jeez. Okay. Yeah, he's never gonna. Okay. Now here is some like issues with this case, and um, I'm gonna list some of them now. All six of the victims which were found face down in their beds with no sign of struggle. Mm-hmm. The police investigation concluded the rifle had not been fitted with a sound suppressor and found evidence of sedatives having been administered. That answers what I was just asking you earlier. Yeah. Okay. DeFeo admitted they drugged the family during its interrogation by the police, but neighbors did not report hearing any gunshots being fired. And those who were awake at the time of the murder simply heard the family dog, Shaggy, barking. So he killed him somewhere else and brought him home? No, he killed him in the home. Uh-huh. No one heard the gunshots at all. Okay. And that rifle, they tested it. That rifle is loud. That Martin rifle is very loud. Most you rifles can, are. You can hear, they did a test of it, and <clears throat> that rifle you can hear two blocks away. Okay. No one heard anything. Not the next door neighbor, anybody. No gunshots whatsoever. Interesting. DeFeo had a volatile relationship with his father, but the motives of the killings remain unclear. He 
asked police what he had to do in order to collect his father's life insurance, which prompted the prosecution to suggest at trial that his motives was to collect on the life insurance policies of his parents. Since his conviction, DeFeo has given seven, several various accounts of how the killings were carried out. In a 1986 interview for Newsday, DeFeo claimed that his sister Dawn killed their father and that their distraught mother killed all the siblings before he killed his mother. He stated that he took the blame because he was afraid to say anything negative about his mother to her father and his father's uncle out of fear they would kill him. His father's uncle was Pete DeFeo who was involved with the Genovese crime family. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they're in New York, right? Yeah. Well, they're out they're Where not in is, New York City. You didn't, um, you didn't even really talk about it. Where is Amityville? Amityville is north. Yeah, it's on. in the state of New York. It's is in it, the state of New it's, York. It's north of New York City. Hold is on. it close to, uh, is it close to the ocean? Uh, yeah, I'm looking, at, yeah, it. I'm looking it up. Um, it's a village in the town of Babylon. It's South Brooks County. Yeah, it's close to the ocean. It's uh, I think it's I think it's looks like east of New York City. Oh, so it's like it's not even. It's not in upstate. It's like on the peninsula that. Yeah, no, it's not east of New York. It's west of New York City. Look, Amityville. Yeah. It's west of New York City. No, that's east of New York City. Where's New York City? Oh, that's New York City. This is New York City, and that's east of. Oh, east. I'm sorry, east. <laughs> right? That's the same Amityville? Yeah. That's so it's not like some like random city or, or town up it's north. It's on the aisle. It's on the aisle, yeah. yeah. Okay, okay, okay. Sorry, didn't mean to distract, but all right. Um, we're going to leave off. The population so, of 9,500 in 2010. Yeah. So this is yeah. a small-ass town. Yeah, it's a really small town. Okay. This is what it's known for. <laughs> yeah, clearly. Um, in an interview, DeFeo asserted that he was, he was married at the time of the murder to a woman named Genevieve Gates with whom he was living in New Jersey, and then his mother phoned to ask him to return to Amityville to break up a fight between Dawn and her father. So he drove to Amityville with Jeremy's brother, Robert uh, Rodon, who was with him at the time of the murder and could verify his story completely. In 1990, Robert DeFeo Jr. filed a 440 motion, a, proce a proceeding to have his conviction vacated. In support of his motion, DeFeo asserted that Dawn and an unknown assailant who fled the house before he could get a good look at him killed their parents and Dawn subsequently killed their siblings. He had said the only person he killed was Dawn and that it was by accident as they struggled over the rifle. Again, he asserted that he was married to Geraldine and that her brother was with him at the time of the murders. Affidavit from Richard Rodo was submitted to the court and asserted that he could not be located to testify in person. Evidence was submitted by the courts by the Suffolk County District Attorney's Office suggesting that Richard Rodoon did not exist and Geraldine Gates was living in upstate New York married to someone else at the time of the murders. Geraldine Gates did not testify at the hearing because the authorities already confronted her 
about the false claims and in 1992 secured a statement under oath which admitted Radon was fictitious and that she did not actually marry Robert DeFail until 1989 in anticipation of filings of the 440 motion. Judge Starts denied the motion, writing, I find the testimony of the defendant overall to be false and fabricated. His testimony that during the fall of 1974, he was married and lived with his wife and child in Long Branch, New Jersey, is incredible, incredible and not worthy of belief. He produced no corroborating evidence in this regard. Another reason for any disbelief of the defendant's testimony is demonstrated by consideration of several portions of the trial testimony. He signed a lengthy written statement describing in detail his activities. In the statement, he said he lived with his family at 112 Ocean Avenue in Amityville and he worked for his father. They was actually went to and from work with his father. That he was ill and stayed home from work on November 12, 1974. That he was on probation for having stolen an onboard engine and had an appointment to see as a probation officer in Amityville that afternoon. Defendant's girlfriend, Wendy Weiss, testified she began dating the defendant in 1974 and was with them frequently that summer and fall. Starks further declared defendant's testimony that he did not shoot and kill the members of the family is likewise incredible and not worthy of belief. Okay. So he keeps making up fucking stories just to try to get out of jail. Okay. But we still don't have a motive for why he killed his goddamn family. Other than maybe he... Just in a fit of rage? Could be, or a drug-induced... Yeah, or a drug-induced rage. Yeah, okay. So... Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's... um, It's a very sad story. There's no doubt about it. No matter what his motive was, um, you know, that's that's a very tragic event. Yeah. Um, I am I am sort of reading about this one aspect of it. I don't know if you were gonna touch on this, but I guess in 2012 some new evidence came out. Okay. That raises questions in the decades-old Amityville horror murders. And the question being asked is, did Ronald DeFeo Jr. act alone? And his documentarian says he had he he had help in killing. And let me just read you a quick little blurb here. Um, 37 years later, a claim that new evidence has been unearthed is raising new questions. Um, the, the new evidence, so essentially they took, um, some, here, hold on, sorry. Uh, they could, they took a team of underwater archaeologists, um, hired by this guy doing the investigation, this guy named Katzenbeck. Um, and they found a gun in the canal behind the house. Mm-hmm. The guy leading the archaeologist dig said, once we cleaned the gun off, you could see that there was a trigger and a handle, but said that the gun was turned over to the crime lab immediately for a forensic ID. Um, and Katzenbeck, the guy who, the guy who ordered the investigation, um, said that this new evidence confirms a long-standing belief that DeFeo didn't act alone. He needed help to kill six people. Katzenbach has long questioned the idea that a single person could have committed the crime. How could a person walk through a three-story Dutch colonial 
shoot six different victims on two separate levels, and no one got out of bed. No one put up a struggle. This is what I was saying earlier. Yeah. That's the first thing that hit me. Like, either, okay, fine, they were, they were all sedated, and mm-hmm. no one was awake, or, how, uh, like, you know, six people. Yeah, that's, that's, it's not like, that's the one part they can't explain, how you went through three different levels killing people. And no one had put up a struggle or fight. So let me read you just a little bit more. Um, other, de- other, other details about the case taken together add up to a second gun and a second shooter. Kotzenbach says, evidence like a photograph of a pillowcase found in a trash can next to the canal. Um, Kotzenbach claims that the details from the 1974 police report point to the possibility that someone else helped DeFeo kill his family. Eyewitness reports, crime scene photos, and handwritten notes all add up to a second gunman, according to Kotzenbeck. Um, he maintains that there there was evidence that was overlooked once the police found a suspect and got a confession. The gun that they found is still being still being examined, but it's got a lot of decay and a lack of legible serial numbers. It may be eb- impossible to ever identify, hmm. and that's it. And who was the person in charge of that? Kotzenbeck. Kotzenbeck? K-A-T-Z-E-N-B-A-C-H. Okay. Um, No, it's probably not tied to this, but because there's another theory brought up by Ronald DeFeo. Ronald DeFeo, um, he had met with Rick Ozil, or Ozuna, the author of The Night the DeFeos Died, which was published in 2002, Cory Ozuna. They spoke for about six hours. However, in a letter to the radio show host, George, oh, excuse me, Lou, Lou Gentile, DeFeo denied giving Rick Ozul information that could be used for his book, claiming they immediately left the interview and not speak to Ozul about anything of substance. <coughs> excuse me. According to Ozul, DeFeo Jr. claimed he had committed the murders with his sister Dawn and two friends. Angie DiGerardo? The G- general and Bobby. The general, the insurance company. No, the general. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the insurance company. <laughs> call the general for a good time. Yeah. <laughs> when you want to kill your family, call the general now. <laughs> and Bobby Kinzel, out of desperation because his parents had plotted to kill him. Allegedly, Ronald claimed that after a furious row with his father, he and his sister planned to kill their parents and that Dawn murdered the children order to eliminate them as witnesses. He said that he was enraged, enraged on discovery, discovering his sister's actions, knocked her unconscious on her bed and shot her in the head. Police found traces of unburnt gunpowder on Dawn's nightgown, which DeFeo proposes alleged proponents alleged proves that she discharged the firearm. However, at trial, the ballistics expert Alfred Della Prena testified that unburnt gunpowder is discharged through the muzzle of a weapon. Indicated she was a was the proximity of the muzzle of the weapon when it had been discharged. It was not she, she fired a weapon. He reiterated this on Annie Annie documentary that is extensively discussed in Will Save Little Savage Mentally Ill in Annieville. Savage had an expert evaluate Della Prentice's assessment, and the expert claims that he was correct. Moreover, the medical examiner found nothing to indicate that Don had been in a struggle. 
the bullet wound was only fresh marks on her body. Joe Nichols notes that given the frequency in which Ronald DeFeo had changed his story over the years, any new claims from him regarding the events that took place on the night of the murder should be approached with caution. Okay. Um, so there's definitely some different theories and different stories being made up, not only by the murderer himself, but a couple of the investigators, including the guy you're talking about and the guy I'm talking about. Um, I'm curious as to, is it because the guy's story keeps changing that there's other speculation out yeah, there? Yeah, and the <clears> unbelievableness <throat> you know? of how a guy could just go from room to room killing people and not no one put up a struggle or anything else. I mean, if the... I mean, that that's the only thing. I think he just drugged them. That's exactly what I'm thinking, too. Yeah, I think he just drugged them and... He was in some drug and he was doing a bunch of drugs too, LSD, heroin. Got sick and tired of his parents' rules. Got sick and tired of not uh, not being able to do what he wanted to do. Just went to killed his parents and he was like, "Fuck it, I'll, like I'll just kill everybody up in here and killed his fucking family." He just he's in prison. He was where he deserves to be. And I hope he rots and dies there. Fuck him. He got six consecutive 25 to lives. He's not getting out. Yeah, he's ever. not getting out ever. And he should just shut the fuck up, take his punishment, and go to hell. Shit. Well, Nobody gives a fuck about him. You're not getting out, so shut up. I can't believe he's uh, still around. But... Yeah, he's still going to be around. He was pretty young when he did the murder, so. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, 1970, I mean, yeah, it was like 40, almost 50 some odd years later. I mean, yeah, he's still going to be around. So, um, yeah, that was the actual uh, murders. Now let's go to the Lutz family, what they claim, them moving in, and what they claim that happened to them once they move in. So, the house at 112 Ocean Avenue had sat empty for 13 months after the failed murders. In December 1975, George and Kathleen Lutz brought the home for what was considered to be a bargain price of $80,000. By the way, how do you uh, how do you spend that as a real estate agent? When someone asks you what happened to the previous <laughs> occupants of this home? Well, you have to tell them the truth. There's a uh, truth in printing laws, I believe, uh -huh. that you have to tell them what any, like if a murder had happened in a house, you have to tell them. If the house is haunted, you have to tell them. If something else is What? Yes, if the house is haunted, there's certain state laws in certain states. There's certain states that that's not required, but in Illinois, if a house is reported to have been haunted, reported and it goes to on whom? Reported to the authorities, reported to like or like you <clears> tell <throat> the real estate agents, hey, I'm moving. Why are you moving? Oh, my house is fucking haunted. I think my house is haunted, or my apartment is haunted. Do you have to call like the the Catholic Church? Who the who the no, hell are you, you even just call? Tell is you there like a library of agents. library of Congress for uh, hauntings? Yeah, that's exactly what it is. Let me get you the number. Uh, it's one person. She's old as fuck, and uh, she can barely hear. <laughs> no, okay. you have to tell the real estate agent that if a house in the state of Illinois, if a house is reported to be haunted, and it goes on sale, a house or apartment, the you have to tell the prospective buyer that well, the house might be haunted. <laughs> I'm gonna have to ask Stephanie if she's ever come across a uh, house that was haunted in her any of her listings. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, I guess if you have to tell the truth as a real estate agent. Yes. You have to. I guess you could 
embellish some of the the truths, you know. Just go over. Six people's lives were <laughs> expired. Fired <laughs> in this home. <laughs> what do you mean expired? They Not, ran out of time. <laughs> they ran out of time. <laughs> what do you mean ran out of time? They're no longer with us <laughs> right now. <laughs> They're not here. They're here. They're playing the big gig in the sky. <laughs> <laughs> they How went to upstate New York. Yes. <laughs> How did they get to upstate New York? Oh, it was a shotgun trip. <laughs> oh. Um, How the hell? So Imagine that conversation. Okay. Yeah, so what so happened 13, here with the Lutz? So December 1975, George and Kathleen Lutz brought the home for what was considered to be burger price eight thousand dollars. The five bedroom house was built in Dutch colonial style. It had a distinctive game broom roof. This also had a swimming pool and a boathouse. It was located on a canal. And a garage. Like the if you look at the pictures of the home, yeah. it's actually big. Yes, it's very huge. For like a normal middle class family home, it's it's pretty big. Um, the the previous family that expired yeah. uh, were they the original homeowners? Like were the, the no, ones no, who built no. The they home? bought the house in nineteen sixty five. Okay, so the home is much older than that. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um. Yeah, swimming pool and a bathhouse located in Gordon Canal. George and Kathy married in July 1975 and each had their own homes, but they wanted to start fresh on a new property. Kathy had three kids from a previous marriage Daniel, nine, Christopher, seven, and Melissa, Misty, five. They owned a crossbreed Labrador dog named Henry. <laughs> During their first inspection of the house, the real estate broker told them about the DeFeo murders and asked if they would affect the decision. Okay, okay. They discussed the matter and decided it was not a problem. Okay, okay. So the Lutz family moves in on December 19, 1975. Much of the DeFeo family furniture was still in the house because it was included for $400 as part of the deal. I'm sorry. You All know, right. you, it, you, you could sell your house... That someone was murdered in, or a group of people were murdered in. But I'm not taking the fucking furniture. No, no, we're gonna get new furniture. Like, get this shit the fuck out of here. Yeah, anything that still has, like, you know, embedded in fabric, remnants of people that were murdered, you know, dead skin cells, no thank you. Mm hmm. Like, if I'm buying that house, I'm repainting every single wall, redoing the floors. Mm hmm. Any surface that might have been touched by the previous residents yeah. is getting yeah, redone. As I, as I paint the walls, all of a sudden I see a little girl in a corner that's not by. I go, come play with me. Ah! <laughs> 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 um, okay. Uh, a friend of George Lutz has learned about the history of the house and insisted to have it blessed. At the time, George was a non-practicing Methodist and had no experience of what this would entail. Kathy was a non-practicing Catholic and explained the process. George knew a Catholic priest named Father Ray who agreed to carry out the house blessing. And the book, The Real Life Priest 
the real life priest is named Father Ralph J. Puccherio, but it's referred to as Father Mancito for privacy reasons in the book. So it's really his name is Father Puccherio. Okay. But we're going to call him Father Mancito for the book purposes and Father Mencito was a lawyer, judge of the Catholic of the Catholic Court, and psychotherapist who lived in the local Sacred Heart Rectory. <clears throat> he arrived in Fort of Blessing while George and Kathy were unpacking their belongings on the afternoon of December 18, 1975. He went into the building to carry out the rites. When he flicked the first holy water and began to pray, he heard a masculine voice demand that he get out. I didn't say that. Yeah. <laughs> Who said that? Who the fuck said that? <laughs> Show yourself! <laughs> when leaving the house, Father Mencito did not mention the incident to either George or Kathy. On December 24th, 1975, Father Mencito called George Lutz and advised him to stay out of the second floor room where he heard a mysterious voice. The former bedroom of Mark and John Matthew disfailed. That Kathy planned to use a sewing room, but the call was cut short by static. During his visit to the house, Father Mencino allegedly developed a high fever and blisters on his hands, similar to stigmata. At first, George and Kathy experienced nothing unusual in the house, talking about their experiences subfrequently. They reported that it was as if they were each living in a different home. Mm. In mid-January 1976, after another attempt at the house blessing by George and Kathy, the experience would turn out to be their final night in the house. The Lutzes declined to give a full account of the events what took place on, on this occasion, describing them as too frightening. After getting in touch with Father Mancino, the Lutz decided to take some belongings to stay at Kathy's mother's house, home near Deer Park, New York, until they sorted out the problems with the home. They claimed the phenomenal phenomenon followed them there with the final scene in Anderson's book describing the greenest black slime clubbing up the staircase towards them. On January 14, 1976, Kat, George and Kathy Lutz with their children and their dog left 112 Ocean Avenue, leaving all their possessions behind. The next day, the movers arrived to move the possessions and sent them to the Lutzes. He reported no paranormal phenomenon while inside the house. <clears throat> The book was written after Tam Motson, an editor at the publishing house Prentice Hall, introduced Kathy and George Lutz to a, to the author Jay Addison. The Lutz did not did not work directly with Addison, but submitted around forty five hours a tape recording recollections, which were used as a basis for the book. Okay. So when, the book was written in 1977. Seven, seven. Yeah, 77. Okay. The movie came out in 1979, the first one. Okay. Uh, we're going to get into some of the what they reported in the uh, their haunting, but I want to get your uh, thoughts real quick. I mean, I actually I'll I'll reserve my opinions until we sort of read what the 
encounters were that they're describing in the book. Okay. Here's some of the things that they described that were happening in the hauntings in the 28 days that they stayed there. Um, George Lutz has said he would wake up at 3.15 every morning, which is around the time that Ronald carried out his murders. Ronald DeFeo carried out his murders. Hmm. The Lutz family claimed to smell strange odors, see green slime oozing out of the walls and keyholes, and experiencing cold spots in certain areas of the home. I told you about the priest and her to get out. Mm-hmm. Some other paranormal activity. Um, a nearby garage door opening and closing by itself. An invisible spirit knocking a knife down in the kitchen. A pig-like creature with red eyes staring down at George and his son Daniel from a window. Mainly the windows you see at the the, the street from the street. The, one of those windows. Mm-hmm. Uh, George walking up to Kathy levitating off of their bed. Their sons Daniel and Christopher also levitating together off of their beds. About that red-headed pig, it was named Jody. Okay. <laughs> and uh, first it started <laughs> off as an invisible um, friend to the daughter, Misty. And then eventually became a full buddy apparition of a fucking pig with red eyes. Uh, a marching band would occasionally, a ghostly marching band would occasionally play throughout the house in the middle of the night. Okay. Um, George would always feel cold in the home, even though, I mean, it was winter, but he would, no matter what, he turned the heat up to 92 degrees, he would still feel cold in the home. Those are some of them. We'll get to a few more later. What do you think so far? Um, yeah, don't, shit sounds scary. Especially the red-eyed pig. Yeah. So these are based off of um, like actual interviews they did with the family? Yeah, the, the 45 hours of interviews that they, um, they had done for the book. Okay. Um, their last night, they haven't gotten into, and they will never get into, because they claimed it was too scary. And they don't want to relive it, but they claim they ran out of the house that night. To never return? To never return again. Okay. Which was just crazy. So, I mean, it is a bit curious that, like, the story was reported. They moved into the house in 75, right? Mm-hmm. Story was reported in 76, and then one year later the book came out. Yeah. And then two years later the movie, the movie came, came out. out. Yeah. Okay. It's a pretty quick turn of events, but mm-hmm. doesn't mean that um, the family's lying. Well, they're the only ones that insist that the stories are real is the Lutzes. Everyone else around them says, no, it's not real. Okay. Um, I don't know. You, you, you tell me that a marching band, a ghostly marching band is playing... In your house in the middle of the night. <laughs> of course I I'm going to look at you like you're fucking nuts. <laughs> I, I got questions. Like, I got a huge amount of questions. Like, uh, what song are they playing? 
like, uh, do they take requests? <laughs> How big was the van? How big was the van? <laughs> I mean, come on, man. That's... And do, does like do any neighbors report seeing anything weird no, outside the home? No, or? no one report else reported anything weird outside the home. Okay. They were the the Lutzes are the only ones that claim that something happened. Okay. Outside of the home. That's what makes their story so hard to nail down. Um, well, let's talk about some of the why people think, why do people and myself believe that this is not true? Okay. Um, the, okay, let's talk about the role of the father, Mancito, in the book. Uh, Pritticello, I think it's Pritticello, uh, is a real nice thing. Let's talk about his involvement. During the there was a lawsuit pulling pulling out against the on the book, and during the course of the lawsuit, which surrounded the case of the late seventies, Father Pacino stated that in an affidavit that his only contact with the Lutzes concerning the matter had been by telephone. Other accounts say that Father Pacino didn't visit the house but experienced nothing unusual there. Father Pacino gave what had may have been his only on camera interview during his recollections during a nineteen eighty. 80 episode of In Search Of, a documentary series hosted by Leonard Nimoy. <laughs> okay. Uh, the father, his father's face was obscured during the interview to preserve his uh, identity. In the interview, he repeated the claim that he heard a voice say, get out, but stopped short of giving it a paranormal origin. He also stated that he felt a slap on his face during the visit, and that he sub subsequently experienced blisters on his hands. The claims of physical damage to the locks, doors, and windows were rejected by Jim and Barbara Cormarty. And who are they? They bought the house for $55,000 in March 1977. In a television interview filmed at the house for That's Incredible, Barbara Cormarty, the next, the next owners of the house, mm -hmm. uh, argued that it appeared to be the original items had not been repaired. The That's Incredible feature also showed that the rent room was a small closet in the basement that would have been, been known to the previous owners of the house, the Lutzes, because it is not concealed in any way. They claim in the book that this red room was concealed, that there's this huge red room, and it was concealed in the back and bricked up until George actually discovered it. It supposedly is supposed to be some dimension leading you to hell or something. Okay. Yeah. Um, and, and the family that moved into the house next says that that room was accessible? The room was accessible. It was a small closet in the basement. Okay. The claim made in Chapter 11 of the book that the house was built on the site of a local Shimicot Indian's burial ground had once abandoned the mentally ill and the dying was rejected by local Native American leaders. Of course. They are saying that this house was built on Native American ground. When you, run, when you run out of uh, other explanations, you just go back to the Indian burial ground. Yeah, when you run out of explanations, especially in the paranormal world, resort to racism. <laughs> Isn't that literally what the movie The Poltergeist is about? Uh, Isn't the, the house sequel. built on... Okay. I think the sequel. Okay. Uh, not okay. The, the first one, they just built it on a cemetery. Okay. They moved the headstones, but they don't 
but they didn't move the bodies. Kind of like where we are right now. They moved the headstones in the old Chicago City Cemetery, but they didn't move the bodies. <sighs> Love it. If you want to hear more of that story, just go back to our Chicago's Myths, uh, Legends, Legends and whatever episode back on Weekend Weird. <laughs> Was I on that one? Yes, you were on that oh, one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I shocked you with that one. <laughs> yeah, 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 you're right. That was back when I was living in the other apartment. Yeah. Uh, the claim of cloven hoof prints in the snow on January 1st, 1977, 1976, excuse me, was rejected by other researchers because weather records showed that there had been no snow uh, in Amityville on that date. Womp womp. Neighbors reported nothing unusual during the time the Lutzes were living there. Police officers are depicted visiting the home in the book in 1979 film, but records showed that Lutz did not call the police during the period that they were living in Ocean Avenue. There is also no bar in Amityville called the Rich's Brew at the time. Mm. Like I said, Robert DeFeo Jr. was a regular customer at Henry's Bar. Okay. Oh, God. Wait, who made that claim that that's the bar that he was at? Um, the book. Okay. So it, it could have just been a mistake? No, it was, you can't make a mistake that blurry, especially when the case where the where Ron DeFeo runs into the bar, is named Henry Bar, and said, oh my God, my parents have been shot. You can't make that mistake. There's no witch's brew near there. Okay. Critics include Stephen Kaplan, had pointed out that changes were made to the book as it's being reprinted in different editions. In the original hardcover edition, Father Priscilla's car was an old tan Ford, and he experiences an accident in which his hood flies up and gets the windshield while he's driving. In later editions, the car is described as a Chevy Vega before running back to the Ford. In 1977, George and Kathy Lutz filed a lawsuit against William Weber, who is William Weber, you ask? He's the defense lawyer for Robert DeFeo Jr. at the time. Oh, shit. Also, Paul Hoffman, a writer working on an account of the hauntings. Benjamin Burton and Frederick Mars both alleged clairvoyance to examine the house, along with Good Housekeeping Magazine, the New York Sunday News, and the Hearst Corporation, all of which published articles related to the hauntings. The Lutz's alleged misappropriation of their names for trade purposes invasion of privacy, mental distress, and he claimed $4.5 million in damages. Hoffman, Weber, and Burton immediately filed a countersuit for $2 million alleging fraud and breach of contract. Contact. Contract, excuse me. The claims against the news corporation were dropped for lack of evidence, and the remainder of the lawsuit was heard by U.S. by U.S. Brooklyn District Judge Jack B. Weinstein. On September 1979, Judge Weinstein dismissed the Lutz's claims and observed in his ruling, based on what I've heard, it appears to me that a large extent of the book is a work of fiction, relying a large part upon the suggestions of Mr. Weber. On September 17, 1979, issue of People Magazine, William Weber wrote, I know this book is a hoax. We've created the horror story over many bottles of wine. This refers to a meeting that Weber is said to have with George and Kathy Lutz, during which they discussed what would later become the outline of Addison's book. Judge Weinstein also expressed concern about the conduct of William Weber and Bernard Burton related to the affair, saying that this is a very serious ethical question when the lawyers become literary agents. So, Weber is alleging 
that he came to the Lexus to try to make money to pay for Ronald DeFeo. I mean, yeah, Ronald DeFeo's defense mm-hmm. because he had no money. So over many miles wide, over a series of days, they came up with this story about this house being haunted. Mm, okay. To try to get a book deal. They were going to sell the book. Weber was going to get a portion of it to pay for the defenses to continue with the Ronald DeFeo's um, defense. And the Lutz were going to get a pretty penny out of it too. But from what Weber is saying is that the Lutz took the story, said, fuck you, Weber, and took it straight to another literary agent who in turn gave it to Jay, Jay Austin to be able to write this book. Okay, so it had been denied, <coughs> denied before by another author? No, it had not been denied before. Is the Lutzes just cut out Weber. I see. Okay. And I don't know if you, I don't know if you were going to mention this, but another heavy skeptic, according to the Seattle Times, Christopher <laughs> Corantino, not oh. Corantino. One of the three Lutz children who lived in the house maintains that the hauntings happen, but that they were mostly hyped up by his former stepfather, George, for profit. And then George and Kathleen split up in 1988, by the way. Yeah, I was going to get to that. Corotino mentioned that George flirted with the paranormal and attempted to summon supernatural beings. The family was apparently also in a lot of debt. Yeah. And it's been speculated that a book and a movie deal could have been helpful in them getting out of hot water. Yeah. Supposedly that's one of the uh, reasons why they made up the story is that they bought this house, even though it was only $80,000, which the house is worth 10 times that, even at the time. Mm -hmm. But they took this house... And they were seriously in financial distress. So they made up the story to be able to get out of it. So, yeah. I mean, it's pretty tough when your own son speaks against the veracity of the Yeah, he would later come out and say that his stepfather, uh, George Lesson, was an asshole. And that made them make up this go into this lie mm-hmm. of the threat of kicking their ass. Okay. So, George Lutz maintained to day died that the events of the book were mostly true and I suggested a dishonesty on his part. In June 1979, George and Kathy Lutz took a polygraph test relating to their experience in the house. The polygraph test was performed by Chris Gugas and Michael Rice, who at the time were reportedly among the top five polygraph experts in America. The results of Mr. Rice's period indicated that did not indicate lying. And you know how I feel about polygraph exams. I mean, they have been proven to be an unreliable source of truth, so. Yeah. So they could have passed a million polygraph tests and still I'd be like, eh, I think y'all lie. <sighs> And various, also, also even afterwards, and like even when the house was like before they sold it, the lots of sold it, they had paranormal investigators come into the house. Um, 
one famous they took a famous photo and that the person who took the photo claims that, that he was taken in the hallway and there was no one in the hallway and the photo shows a young child in the hallway. Now it's been said that this child was one of the paranormal investigators' kids playing around in the house. Okay. But the f- person who took the photograph claims that um, there was no one in the hallway. Um, then <laughs> comes in my favorite two paranormal investigators. Comes in at the time. Uh, Oh no! Don't and, tell. Don't tell me. Ann and Lorraine Ward. <laughs> no. <laughs> now we've never mentioned Ann and Lorraine Ward on this show ever. In the two years that we've done it, uh, we haven't done many ghost stories uh, that involve them. But soon we will get into it. But Ann and Lorraine Ward are, in my opinion, two frauds. Yep. And it's shared by a lot of members of the paranormal uh, community. These guys are frauds. Yes, the Codring universe has some decent films. I enjoyed the first Codring. Um, Annabelle comes home. Uh, no, Animal Creation, I enjoyed. Saw it in the theater. I really enjoyed that movie. Uh, really disappointed by the nun. <laughs> um, but they're, they're frauds. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, everything I know about them, they're like charlatans. I mean, yeah, it's not, they're not here as ill, Ill talk of the dead, but either or George and Kathy Lutz, they passed away too, but fuck, none of the shit they reported was true. And the only reason you'll hear about the NLRA Ward uh, involved in this story too much, especially in the movies, is because the rights... To the story, they tried to secure the rights to the story, but they couldn't. Got it. So otherwise, the Amityville Horror would have started off the Cadre Universe, and it wouldn't be called the Cadre Universe; we call the Amityville Universe. Or uh, I'm making some ghost shit up. They claim that they heard voices and found the demon room in Amityville House and. No, they didn't. No, they didn't. So, what's happening to the house now? Well, new owners are in the house right now. Um, the house was recently up, to, up for sale a couple of years ago. It was purchased. Um, the house was valued at $1.15 million. It was sold for $990,000. Okay, damn. This is still a very piece of property. The uh, Historical Society refuses to talk anything about the house, the murders, anything. Because it tied the publicity. People still drive by the house to this day, looking at the house, seeing if they can see anything. All the all the, the owners after the Lutzes reported nothing going on in the home. They reported nothing. No hauntings, no nothing. So either they're all lying, which I highly doubt, or nothing has really happened in that house. So after they left the house, the family, yeah, you know, allegedly after the hauntings, um, I mean, was the house sold immediately? Did they were they buried in the, debt? Like what the hell happened? No, they sold the house 
in March of 77. Okay. After they left, they never returned. They only grabbed a few things from the house, and they still ended up selling it in 1977 for, for $55,000. Got it. Uh, they, they received some money from the profits of the book, I believe a little bit from the movie. Uh, but uh, that was it. They continued to tell their story. Um for years to come. In October 2000, the History Channel broadcast Amityville the Haunting and Amityville Horror Hoax, a two-part documentary made by horror screenwriter producer Daniel Farritz. George Lusk commented in an interview for the program, I believe this has stayed alive for 25 years because it's a true story. It does not mean that everything you said about it has been true. It's certainly not a hoax. It's real easy to call something a hoax. I wish it was, but it's not. Um, after the Lutz family left in 1976 and reported no problems, and reported no problems living there, James Cormarty, Cor who brought the home in 1977 and lived there with his wife Barbara for 10 years, commented, "Nothing weird ever happens except for people coming by because of the book and the movie." In the movie, oh God, the first movie, The Amityville Horror, came out in 1979. Sorry, James Brolin and Margot Ketter. They made a lot of money and proceeded to make the sequel, Amityville Harbor 2, The Procession. Then proceeding over the years, Amityville 3D, Amityville 4, The Evil Escapes, The Amityville Curse, Amityville, it's about time! <laughs> <laughs> Amityville, A New Generation, Amityville Dollhouse, the remake, 2005 remake Amityville Horror, the Amityville Haunting, the Amityville Asylum, the Amityville Death House, Amityville Playhouse. It was mentioned in Conjuring 2. Amityville No Escape in 2016, Amityville Vanishing Point in 2016, Amityville Legacy in 2016, Amityville Terror in 2016. So it was a really big year in 2016 for Amityville. Amityville Prison in 2017, Amityville The Awakening. That's with Robert Williams in 2017. <laughs> and Amityville Murders in 2018. The 1979 book, which is based as most well-known in the series, which I told you starred James Brolin and Dario Keller, portraying <laughs> a, a Georgia Cappy Lutz. The part of the priest who busts a home, renamed Father Delaney in the film, is played by Academy Award-winning actor Rod Stater. The first three Amityville films received a theatrical release, while the fourth was made for television by NBC. The sequels were in 90s, were released direct in video, and contained virtually no material related to the Lutz family or the DeFeo murders. Instead, they concentrate on paranormal phenomena caused by cursed items supposedly linked to the house. One of the, one of the famous features of the Amityville horror films is the distinctive pumpkin head appearance of the house, which was created by two quarter round windows on the third floor attic level. The windows are often illuminated in the film, giving the appearance of malvolent eyes. The first three films were filmed in a house in Toms River, New Jersey, which was converted to look like 112 Ocean Avenue after the authorities in Amityville denied permission for filming locations. All, all throughout, not all of the films in the Amityville Horror series are set in the former Lutz home in Oceanville, Ocean Avenue. Excuse me. The distinctive Dutch colonial house is traditionally used as the main image and promotional material. The 2005 remake of the original Amityville film was released with the tagline, Catch em and Kill em. 
referring to the claim link between the house and Ocean Avenue and John Ketchum, whose name was linked to the witchcraft in Salem, Massachusetts, but remains a controversial and elusive figure. This version staggerates the isolation of 112 Ocean Avenue by depicting it in a remote home similar to the Overlook Hotel in Stephen King's The Shining. In reality, 112 Ocean Avenue is a suburban home within 50 feet of other houses in the neighborhood. The house used in 2005 version of Silver was in Silver Lake, Wisconsin, while other location, location work was shot nearby Antioch, Illinois. The child character Jody DeFeo, appearing in the 2005 film, is fictional and not one of the victims of the shootings by Robert DeFeo in 1974. George Lux described the 2005 remake as drivel and sued the makers for breach of contract and defamation of libel. He objected particularly to a scene in the film which Meryl Lee, named as George Lutz, played by Ryan Reynolds, is shown killing a family dog with an axe. The film also shows George Lutz's character building coffins for members of his own family. The defamation claim was dismissed by a Los Angeles court in November 2005, while other issues related to the lawsuit remained unresolved at the time of George Lutz's death. The documentary by Amityville Horror was released in March 2013, which features interviews with Daniel Lutz, one of the children who lived in the house during the period in which the book and film were based. Lux echoes the original story as told by his mother and stepfather. He also makes additional claims that both he and George Lutz were possessed and that George Lutz demonstrated telekinetic abilities and strongly suggested that George Dabbley and Nicole may initiated the Dedeonic events. Oh, Jesus Christ. Um... <sighs> Okay, something else to be said. I don't know if you saw it on your yeah. uh, during your research. It says the Lutz had a falling out with their lawyer due to financial issues. Mm-hmm. He, that lawyer that helped him out back then, has now or has since said that the haunted house stories were an elaborate ruse by the Lutz family to get themselves out of debt. Yeah. So just their own lawyer is doubling down on this, uh, mm-hmm. you know, idea that they were trying to get themselves out of debt by selling the book. Yeah. Catherine Lutz died of emphysema, and George Lutz died of heart failure. Catherine Lutz died in 2004. George Lutz died in 2006. The couple had divorced in the late 80s, but remained on good terms. <clears throat> During a period in which the Lutz family was living on 112 Ocean Avenue with Dr. Stephen Kaplan, a self-stylized vampirologist. Oh, <laughs> Jesus. I mean, you got to be self-stylized, right? Yeah, you can't. I don't think there's a college you, course for that. Yeah. Who's going to appoint you the uh, vampirologist? Like, where do you even get that certification? Um, Transylvania University. <laughs> I graduated at the top of my class. <laughs> of course, that shit's self-appointed. Just wake up one day and you're like, oh, I'm a vampire lologist now. I'm an expert on vampire killing. That's it. No going back. Um, He's also a ghost, was a ghost hunter, was called in to investigate the house. Kaplan and Lutz's had a falling out after Kaplan said that he would expose any fraud they found. Kaplan went on to write a clinical book titled The Abbeville Horror Conspiracy with his wife, Roxanne Kaplan. The book was published in 1995. On the night of March 6, 1976, the house was investigated by Ed and Lorraine Warren. What year? 1976. This is after the events of 
After the Conjuring? Uh, or before? After the first Conjuring, I think. Okay. Right. In, like, in, in the movie universe, it takes place after the Conjuring 2, after, which is the infield. Conjuring 2 deals with the infield haunting in England, which we'll get to on a, on a future episode. Of Ooh, Weekend, preview. Yeah, this is a nice little, nice little preview right there. Um, um, together with a crew from the television station Channel 5, New York, and reporter Michael Linden of WNEW-FM. During the course of the investigation, Gene Campbell took a series of infrared time-lapse photos. One of the images showed a demonic boy, which I told you about, uh-huh. with glowing red eyes and standing in front of the foot of the staircase. The photograph did not emerge into the public domain until 1979 when George Kaplan Lutz and Rod Stager appeared on the Murder Griffin show to promote the release of the first film. 112 Ocean Avenue was also investigated by parapsychologist Hans Hoser. The Warrens and Hosers suggest the house is occupied by malevolent spirits due to its history. The Warrens' visit to the house was depicted in the Lacandre 2. George Lutz registered the phrase of Amityville Horror as a trademark in 2002 and referred to it as the Amityville Horror on his official website. Lutz claims that the film produces embellished or fabricated events portrayed in the 1979 version in the 2005 remake. He also claims the producer of the 2005 film did not involve the family and that he used his name without permission. The house known as 112 Ocean Avenue still exists, but is renovated and the address changed in order to discourage sightseers. To 108 Ocean Avenue, which is what, like four houses down? Yeah, four numbers down. Yeah. <laughs> the famous quarter-round windows have been removed, and the house today looks considerably different from its depiction in the films. The house in Tom River, used as the location of the first three films, has also been modified for the same reason. For the 2005 film the version, the house was renamed 412 Ocean Avenue. The 2005 film remake states that the basement of Lutz home was built in 1692, but the 112 Ocean Avenue, also known as High Hopes, was built around 1924 for John and Catherine Monahan. Okay, so the house is not that old, but no. 1920s? 1920s, yeah. Okay. The local residents and authorities of Amityville, New York, were unhappy with the attention that the Amityville horror brings to the town and tended to decline requests to discuss it publicly. The website of the Amityville Historical Society makes no mention of the murders by Robert, Ronald DeFeo Jr. in 1974, the period that the Lutz family lived at 112 Ocean Avenue. When the History Channel made a documentary about the Amityville horror in 2000, no member of the Historical Society would discuss the camera matter on camera. Uh, episode of CSI New York, first broadcast in 2007, or Halloween, <clears throat> was based on the Amityville Horror. The title, Boo, it features a house in Amityville where a family had died under circumstances similar to the DeFeo murders. In May 2012, the house was placed on the market for the asking price of $1.15 million. In August 2010, the house was sold to a local resident for $950,000. On August 21st, 2010, the party order owner held a moving cell at the home and hundreds of people turned up for the event. They were allowed to go inside the house but not visit the upstairs rooms or the basement. I see. And an update to the home. The Amityville, the Amityville house officially sold in February 2017 to an undisclosed owner 
for six hundred five thousand dollars, which was two hundred thousand dollars less than the original asking price. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so somebody's living there. Yeah, and report no reports of any phantom marching bands, pigs named Jody that stares out the windows, um, and people going insane with uh, shotguns or axes. None of it. Seems like it's been pretty smooth sailing since all this happened in 1977. Yep. 74, 5, whatever. 75, I'm sorry. Yep. And that... Is that it? Pretty much. Is that all the facts we have on it? That's all the facts. All right. What do you think, Ogul? I think um, just... I mean, the whole story is sort of undercut and undermined by the lawyer coming out and saying that the story was fabricated because the family was in debt. Right. So, I don't know if there's much else to say to it, honestly. If their lawyer came out and said they made up the story, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And if the family was really in debt, which seems to be true, and if they were just trying to get rid of the house, you know, they at that point they're just opportunists at you know trying to get themselves out of a out of a situation where they couldn't afford to own the home any longer that's that's my take on it yeah that's pretty much my take on it too it's a fucking hoax it's a hoax driven by railroad tragedy and a family getting over their heads and thinking they can make a quick buck and Hollywood Hollywood coming in and just not letting you go until because it's a good last year or whatever the last movie yeah. came out. Yeah, because it's a good ghost story. It's a good demon story, especially <laughs> after you have to think about the time it came out. It was right after The Exorcist in nineteen seventy four. Mm-hmm. The Exorcist was a big hit. Um, you have uh, people going through a satanic panic, which we'll get to. Throughout the season, weekend weird, which will probably be our next episode. Okay. Dealing with a story during the satanic panic. Um, people want to go to the movies. <laughs> it's a rebirth of Hollywood. It's the start of the the modern Hollywood blockbuster. Because you have Jaws in '75, Star Wars in '77, Alien '79, also <laughs> the year they reveal horror. Yeah. Yeah. It, 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 it's an intriguing story. But it's not true. It's just a fictional story. Yeah. Like I said, until <clears throat> until you came over and we decided to do this podcast, I had no idea it was considered to be a hoax. I just knew the story from the film. I never saw the 1979 film. I only saw the 2005 film with Ryan Gosling. And yeah, yeah I didn't know it was a hoax. I didn't know there was so much claims against it. Yeah. So... So, yeah, that is the Amityville hoax. This is horror. Murders. This is all of it. You judge for yourself if you think it's real or not. But from our estimation... Nah. Nah. Good story, though. Good story. No, good story. And it sounds like Hollywood's still going to continue to make films about it. Yeah. I mean, especially if you have more of a cadre universe coming out there. Okay. Which or whatever, we get back to Bowtie uh, films we released in theaters. 
but we can get back to that normal. But yeah. Okay. Um, that about does it. Yeah, that about does it. Uh, just got some <laughs> housekeeping issues. There's a couple of uh, important messages just come up. Um, we'll be uh, we'll be not doing our duty if we didn't comment on what's going on right now. Murders mm-hmm. um, of uh, African American African Americans by the police, police brutality, rampant protests going around the nation, around the world even. Um, we're at a time where <clears throat> we're scared and we're also fed up and angry. And you had said it best when we talked about this first started talking about this when it first happened. This is a perfect tornado of shit just happening. Us just standing in the house going for this pandemic that never should have got to the point than it is now, but because of the current leadership of this country, um, who really doesn't give a goddamn about anything other than themselves, uh, people who follow this moron, this mass murder, blindly, like they're the Church of Scientology or some other cult. That over a hundred thousand people in this country have died from a disease, from a pandemic that never should have got to this point. Yeah, I think last week New Zealand officially came out and claimed that they had no new cases of the coronavirus. They had no new cases in three weeks. I mean, I understand New Zealand is a much much smaller country than we are, but they're not the only example around the world. Yeah. So to say that the U.S. botched the response to COVID is an understatement. That. You know, people being stuck inside for three months, unemployment at its highest rate since the Great Depression, mm-hmm. a country feeling high levels of anxiety in an election year where some people think that either the election is going to be screwed with and or, you know, this orange yeah. Cheeto is not going to want to leave the White House. Like, mm-hmm. there's a lot of anxiety going on in the country right now. <laughs> and... You know, the murder of George Floyd was just the spark that sort of lit the the dry kindling. Mm -hmm. And people are out on the streets. And honestly, you know, I'm not even going to address the the looting and the rioting that happened in the first week of all this. Because Mm -hmm. that's just, that's just juice for... The news and network network news. It's it's the you know the the crime sells thing. Mm-hmm. The real story is that the country is speaking mm-hmm. on the streets. There's a unified voice. There's real call for change. And I'm a pragmatic person, Nick. You know it. Yeah. To me, this time. This time, these protests feel different. Mm-hmm. Um, so through the through the trauma and the tragedy, I think there's an ultimate silver lining that's being written in front of our eyes, which is that you know a voice has been given to 
a movement that's been side sideline. If you go back and watch interviews with Colin Kaepernick mm-hmm. from 2016 and 17, when everybody but BLM yeah. was against him, mm-hmm. it's kind of eerie how correct he was in the things he was saying three, four years ago. Mm-hmm. And um, I, 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 I watched interviews with him recently from back then um, just to see what he had to say three, four years ago and I don't know if there's anybody else in the country who feels more validated as much as Colin Kaepernick does right now. I don't know if that makes him feel good but no, it, doesn't. it is validation nevertheless um, I feel like in 2016 the Black Lives Matter movement made a lot of noise. I don't know if people were listening. I feel like this time around people are listening. You know, it's been almost three weeks since George Floyd's murder. And just today, just today, mm-hmm. a couple hours ago, there was a massive protest down the street from where I live. Mm-hmm. In fact, I, I called you and said, you might want to take a different route because it's tough to get to my house. Yeah. Um, and there's no lie, there's no rooting, looting or rioting going on right now. It's people out on the streets, voicing their opinions, concerns. Um, and I feel like, I don't know, I, I feel like there's a shift happening in the country right now. I mean, just dude, like, it might seem trivial to some, especially people not living in this country. But the fact that NASCAR, NASCAR, came out and said they're banning the Confederate flag from all of their races. And, I, I mean, again, that might seem trivi- trivial to some. Who cares about NASCAR? A lot of people do in this country. Mm-hmm. It's like one of the biggest live sporting events in the country. And, <clears throat> you know... For an, for an organization like NASCAR coming out and, and supporting this call for the country to reckon with its history, it says a lot knowing that they are going to piss off a lot of their fans. And they're just like, you know what? Go watch something else if you don't like us. Yeah, um, d- just... You know? Yeah, just to placate, NASCAR has always wanted... The <clears throat> owners of NASCAR always wanted to do that. They always wanted to get rid of the Confederate flag and the connotation that this is a quote-unquote redneck sport. They want to be a more global sport. Sure. They want to attract more people of uh, diverse ethnic backgrounds um, watching their sport and participating in their sport. This was just a reason for them to finally go ahead and say, we're going to do this. Um, do I applaud them? No, no. But there's something they always wanted to do. Yeah, and I don't want to sound so. Always, I, I hate to sound cynical, but that's how it, that's how it is. It's it, just... On the same note, Nick, I don't want to sound naive to say that like their intentions were completely wholesome and altruistic and and all that. Obviously, there's business decisions being made by a lot of these corporations and organizations. Yeah. But at least it's being made. Yeah. You know, don't 
you don't want to hinder progress just because it's coming from voices that didn't historically align with what we want this country to become one day. Mm-hmm. Um, take allies where you can, is what I say. Right. And I don't know. I just, again, going, going back, I'm just going to repeat myself again. This time just feels different. This time feels different. You got police chiefs, sheriffs, deputies, all around the country speaking out against it. Not, not just Black Lives Matter, not just systemic racism, but just police brutality and, you know, progress happens by inches. And I feel like in the last couple of weeks, the country has ran a couple of yards. Yeah, I mean... Correct me if I'm wrong. It's still some of the same shit. I mean, you still see some of um, these white supremacists, Trump supporters, last, not their last gas, but making gas, um, trying to defend their, their whatever fucking way of life they want to choose to be, police attacking police still attacking innocent protesters um, out there fighting for their lives. Um, There is a synthetic change because a lot of people are jumping on and saying, hey, this is is wrong. This is is enough is enough. We're sick of this. Um, Trying to be on the right side. And and especially for it's been happening for years and years and years and years and years. It's not just, just Starting up just because of George Floyd being murdered, but years and years and years and years. Talk about Rakia Boyle, uh, Laquan McDonald, uh, so many goddamn names. I, I I can't I can't remember them all. Yeah, names from the eighties, seventies, you know, and and enough is a fucking enough, and, and I'm sick of it. I'm sick of it. You know, you, 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 you can't go out, you want to go out and, and be a productive citizen and be left alone and not have to worry about if some cop is going to pull me over, is this going to be the last moments of my life? You, you get sick of it. And you're out here, we're out here fighting for what is right in our lives. And these cops are, or, or what's really questioning their authority. Yeah, we're questioning your authority. You work for us. Supposedly, you're supposed to work for us, but no, you work for higher ups. You work for bosses, and you you want to keep the status quo, but the status quo sucks, and it's killing us. And I'm sick of the status quo, and I'm tired of it. Fuck the status quo. Fuck your authority. You don't like it? Quit. I'm a truck driver by trade. That's why this show is not on every week, week by week, like other podcasts. Because I have a regular job. My job is, is a truck driver. That's my dude. That's my trade. Mm-hmm. And the training that I have to go through to become a truck driver and the diligence that I have to be to be a truck driver because if I fuck up, that's someone's life out on the road or that's my life or both. And yet you have these cops that go around shooting people unprovocated. Like this was shot like just Saturday in Atlanta. Rashad Brooks murdered in the parking lot of a Wendy's. 
because he was sleeping in his car. Yeah, I mean... You shouldn't be have to be murdered. They're just sleeping in his car. These assholes on, on social media. Well, he was a criminal. Fuck you. No, you're the criminal. You're the fucking criminal. If I may interject for a second here, I, I completely dispel this notion where the, the narrative, anytime an unlawful killing like this happens, mm -hmm. it's always police murdered so-and-so um, because blank. Mm -hmm. If that because doesn't follow with he fired back at the police, police and killed a police officer, or he was threatening the lives of others, who cares what the story was? Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah. He had a hoodie on, he was sleeping in a Wendy's, he was running away. None of these are good enough reasons to kill a human being. I think... I watched the documentary and I was going to tell you about this actually. Um, a couple of days ago called Do Not Resist. Yeah. I highly recommend it for you and anyone who's listening. Um, this documentary was made the year after Ferguson. Mm -hmm. And it's about the militarization of the United States um, police force and it essentially talks about how radicalized the police have become in this country mm. and um, how they're essentially taught if you sense any danger shoot first and deal with the consequences later yeah um, there's no training for de-escalation. There's no training for subdue a suspect without having your hand on the trigger of your gun. Mm -hmm. So there needs to be so many police reforms ma being made, but it can't be left up to the cities and the counties. It needs to come from top down. I don't expect the Trump administration to really do anything about this honestly but maybe the next administration i don't know if it's biden i don't uh, shit his, his answer is a shoot shoot him with a goddamn leg yeah i, I saw mean, that which is fucking know, terrible the, i know what the fuck is but wrong at least with you, joe but at least he can he can at least surround himself with people who might talk some sense into him about this stuff because as much as i don't like joe biden at least he's not a stubborn psychopath. Yeah. He is willing to listen to people around him that would give him, you know, that would lead him in the, in the right direction to address these problems. I don't... We don't need to get into sure, the, yeah. the election and Joe Biden and all that. All I'm saying is the, the... The change needs to come from top down, from the federal government telling to all of the states... To all the governors, hey, you have until fucking 2021. I need every single one of the governors to come up with a comprehensive plan to reform the police in your states, right? Mm -hmm. And that's really the only way this is going to change. Yeah, 
can you weed out racists out of the police force? Probably not. Yeah. But you know what you can do? Is instead instead of having the psych psych psychological tests that they give to police officers be mm-hmm. at the very end of their hiring process, yeah. do it at the front. Uh-huh. That should be the first test. Are you psychologically resolute and and human enough to be able to carry out the duties of this job without killing someone every other day? Uh-huh. Like, stop hiring kids who got bullied in high school into the police force. Stop hiring people who have chips on their shoulders into the police force. Stop hiring people who... <laughs> couldn't make it into the military or whatever into the police force. Cause I feel like these cops who commit this type of violence against citizens and it doesn't just have to be murder either, right? Murder is the ultimate obviously, but cops are dicks in this country. Mm-hmm. It's their way or the highway. And if you challenge their authority in any way, their their egos are bruised. That's not the way policing should be done in a country that's supposed to be the, you know, I know you would disagree with this next statement, but that's supposed to be the shining light of a democratic society as we have it. Um, yeah, re- like... Re- yeah, yeah um, go it's simple. Stop killing people. So, but yeah, stop killing people. Stop killing people. Stop treating humans like they are your <laughs> subservience. Mm-hmm. You, we give you the authority to police the society, right? Right. Because we, in our hearts, want to believe that you have this higher you know um I, I don't know how to word what I'm trying to say here stop hiring stop hiring people into the police force who feel like they have something to prove other than just wanting to do the right thing for society. Mm-hmm. These guys who get hired with these giant chips on their shoulders can't wait to pull the trigger in a moment where they should only be de-escalating the situation. I want to end this last story here. Um, I, had a, I have a friend... She's a reporter. She was down in uh, Minnesota, Minneapolis, when uh, this first started uh, going on. She's a freelance reporter. We did uh, to take, keep butchering her last name because uh, uh, to to I'm not gonna butcher her last name. I'm like fucking just butcher. Uh, but she was on CNN today. Uh, we recorded this on a Sunday, uh, June the thirteenth. Is it the thirteenth? Uh, today's the 14th. 14th. Yeah. Uh, she was just on CNN today. Um, she was down covering the, uh, the protests and the uprising going on in Minnesota. And, uh, she was, 
shot in the eye with a rubber bullet. She ended up losing her left eye. Her right eye. Covering. Doing her job. Shot for no reason. Other than she was doing her job. I've seen videos of reporters being attacked by the police. This is this is ridiculous. This, this is absolutely ridiculous. This needs to stop. And we can't wait to November for this to stop. This needs to stop now. So if you're taking to the streets, continue to take to the streets. If you haven't been out on the streets, get out on the streets. If you're on the fence about it, stop being on the goddamn fence about it and get in the game. And be on the right side. And you know what? Let me just say something here. You don't have to be out in the streets protesting to make a change. You know what you need to do? What? Is talk about it. Talk about it. It's best talk to be about on it. the streets. Yes, talk about it, but be out on the streets. No, I understand, but happens like happens on the streets. Nick, it I understand, just, but not everybody can go out in the streets. Not everybody can. If you can. have the ability to. And especially during COVID, I, look, I myself will tell you, I protested many times in the past. Mm-hmm. I haven't gone out for this. Yeah, I know. I don't want to be near that many people with this disease that hasn't gone away yet, you know, lingering out there. What I'm saying is you don't need to be out on the streets to make a change. Yes, people need to be out there. If you can't be out there, keep talking about this. Mm -hmm. Keep talking about this, not with people who agree with you, but keep talking to people who disagree with you. This is the time to bring this shit up to family members who you feel uncomfortable talking to this stuff about. Because you know what? There's a sea change, y'all. There's a sea change in this country and around the world. And like Nick just said, I promise you, as difficult as these conversations might be, knowing that you're on the right side of the history on this, knowing that you are on the right side of history on this, Five years from now, ten years from now, if we can look back on this moment and say this was the nexus for the change, you can be proud to tell your family members that, or your kid, or your cousin, or your niece or nephew, that you didn't stand, you didn't resist change, you were a part of the movement. Keep talking about it, Mm y'all. In... Yeah, anyways, that's that's all yeah, I have to say yeah, about yeah, that. Keep, keep talking about <clears throat> it, even as uncomfortable we might make people, even uncomfortable you might be on talking about it. You know, that's the point. You got to be uncomfortable. It's called life. Because change doesn't happen being comfortable. Change happens being uncomfortable, going outside of your skin, outside of your known area. That's how change happens. Because it's only going to get worse. This is not like the next one. That might be it. That might you might not have enough time to be able to talk about. It, it might be grab a rifle and good luck. You don't want to go to that point. Other societies have fallen from that point. People have never gone back 
to being regular again. So if you're uncomfortable talking about it too damn bad, get uncomfortable. Yeah. Do what you got to do. Because this has to stop. He's just going to stop peacefully. Or it's going to stop and it's not going to be something you're going to like. Yeah, I mean, it, um, no, what you just said about things might not be the same again, mm-hmm. I don't think they will be, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I don't think they will be, um, I think something changed in this country in 2020, mm-hmm. and I don't know if there's ever going back from it. Nope. So, let me read you something real quick yeah. that someone sent me the other day. This is one of my coworkers who's, um, she's very much into uh, protesting on the streets. Sorry, y'all. Okay. This is something that she saw on, I think on Twitter or Reddit, and it goes... What if 2020 isn't canceled? What if 2020 is the year we've been waiting for? A year so uncomfortable, so painful, so scary, so raw, that it finally forces us to grow. A year that screams so loud, finally awakening us from our ignorant slumber. A year we finally accept the need for change, declare change, work for change, become the change. A year we finally band together instead of pushing each other further apart. 2020 isn't canceled, but rather the most important year of them all. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's this episode of uh, (laughs) Weekend Weird. I mean, there's no other way to end it than that. I mean, it's, um, you know, we do these things, podcasts, whatever social media memes all this stuff to sort of distract ourselves from mm-hmm. you know what's going on yeah. um so thank you guys for being a part of that nick thank you for inviting me on to these i mm-hmm. genuinely appreciate it mm-hmm. um but don't let don't let it get don't let it distract you and don't get it twisted like right. what's going on in the country right now is on the forefront of my mind and anything I do to distract from thinking about it is only temporary and my mind goes back to where you know to thinking about where we are as a country and where we're going mm-hmm. not not country fuck that where we are as an as as a world as a human race so yeah yeah the aliens ain't gonna come unless we get our shit together <laughs> yeah how can we go to the stars and we can't fix what's out in the fucking round corner? Isn't that, you know, hey, li- listen, isn't that, isn't that, honestly, isn't that the most amazing thing yeah. about 2020? Yeah. We, during all of this uncertainty, we launched two people in the space from a, with a rocket built by a private company mm-hmm. to the International Space Station. Mm-hmm. In the middle of all this, mm-hmm. and if that doesn't sum up humanity in one, you know, 
narrative. I don't I don't know what else can. Right. While the world is burning, we're still we're still exploring and, and going forward. For the stars. <laughs> yeah, we're still aiming for the stars. You know? Yeah. So um, anyways, your thing. Yeah. Thanks um, for letting us no, uh, no. rant about rant about life for a second. No problem. No problem. Um, next couple of our next episode uh, will definitely be about the um, satanic panic that happened during the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. Uh, we'll be taking a story, a very um, true story that happened during that period of time. Um, you can call it a witch hunt, whatever you want to call it, but uh, we'll be doing all of that for that story. Um, also, we'll be doing uh, stories. Um, about the supernatural, Boily Rectory, more true crime, um, more um, UFOs, aliens, the weird and mundane out in this universe. We will be covering that on the next on the next episodes of Weekend Weird. So uh, stay tuned um, for those. It'll be coming up in the near future uh, as much as we can. Um, and we thank you again for listening to Weekend Weird. Uh, things are tough right now, but we'll get through them. And we'll get through them as different and better people. And those who want to step in the front of that will be moved aside and forgotten about in the annals of history. So for myself, for Nick, co-host of Ghoul. One thing. Yes. Listen to the new Run the Jewels album. <laughs> right after this right after we're done go go listen to the run the jewels album actually though actually though it's literally the soundtrack of what's going on right now yes i <laughs> so if you listen to this on spotify all you have to do is just search run just the listen to the new album <laughs> you will not be disappointed and you'll thank me yes <laughs> sorry go ahead um, <laughs> for myself, Red Dick, and my co-host, Ogul, uh, we say thank you again for listening to Weekend Weird. Um, take care of yourselves and each other. And most importantly, stay weird. Because being weird is really cool. Thank you again. Take care. Have a good night.